Hello and welcome to this week's Bunker Roundtable with me, Andrew Harrison. As Putin's war on Ukraine continues to degenerate, horrific stories of mass graves and apparent war crimes are emerging from the towns of Bucha, Erpin and Hostomel. Does Russia's increasing brutality indicate that the beginning of the end of this war might be coming near? And what might the end look like? Plus, as the cost of living crisis intensifies, Britain's middle classes are beginning to feel the pinch, some for the first time. And finally, should you put books on your shelves if you haven't read them? The actor Ashley Tisdale, of high school musical fame apparently, just bought 400 books purely as decoration. We would never do something like that, would we? Or do we all use authors for image building? All that and more on this week's Bunker. Hello, thanks for joining us. Remember, if you enjoy The Bunker, you can keep us going by backing us on the crowdfunding site Patreon. You'll get the shows early, ad-free, and you'll also get exclusive merchandise when you back us for as little as £2 a month. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast, and there's a link in the show notes too. Let's meet today's panel. First up, hello, and welcome to the independent political sketch writer Tom Peck. Hi, Tom. Hiya, how you doing? Yeah, not bad. Um, so, Tom, the first Partygate patsies have been identified. Former civil service ethics chief Helen McNamara got a £50 ticket, uh, amongst other people also being fined. A couple of ministers have accepted the fines as proof that law-breaking took place. But there's a concerted effort in government to say, you know, the world has moved on. Jacob Rees-Mogg is blaming the inhuman rules that the government itself wrote. Can that line hold? Are, are people going to just accept this idea that the world has moved on? No, it absolutely cannot hold. <clears throat> I mean, Jacob Rees-Mogg is the gift that keeps on giving, right? If, if the best line that you've got, the best defence that you've got is the public's moved on, when it very obviously hasn't, then you're already in trouble. But you're in double trouble if you're not bright enough to work out that the place to test drive this line that the public has moved on really is not in a radio phone-in show with the public, which is what Jacob <laughs> Rees-Mogg did this morning. Because what happens then is that the public hear you telling them that they've moved on, and then the public ring in and they tell you that they haven't, which is exactly what's happened to Jacob Rees-Mogg on the, on the radio today. No, the public haven't moved on at all. Like, what people like you and me and probably everyone listening to this podcast does is we always overestimate how much normal people care about politics. We're, we're inclined to think that a war in Ukraine, which... It's still, for most people in this country, something that is happening on the news channels supplants um, COVID and, and the government's COVID wrongdoing when it doesn't. COVID was the one thing for a long time that drastically turned everyone's life for a very long time to a complete misery. And if it turned, and, and the government's been found out breaking its own rules and pretty obviously lying about it. And that is not something from which the people have moved on at all. The Wales Secretary, Simon Hart, is now saying that Johnson shouldn't resign even if he does get a fine. How far are we now from Richard Nixon? And it's not, you know, it's not illegal if the president stroke prime minister does it. Um, look, I don't think Boris Johnson will willingly resign even if he's found to have broken the law. He'll just try and style it out. And, and, and there's no clear rule that says that he can't. The only people who will move this story on, if you like, the only people who can get rid of him are his own MPs. And they're not asking themselves a big moral question, you know, was this right or wrong? They're just asking, will they be more or less likely to win the next election with Johnson or with someone else? And this is where I sort of vaguely have some sympathy because they don't genuinely know the answer to that question. They can see what's happened has been a horror show and they can see the poll lead hemorrhaging. But there's still a lot of them that think, you know, well, this guy really does know how to win an election twice in London, the Brexit referendum, 2019. Maybe some of them think this will blow over. Maybe things will be worse with somebody else. And, you know, I'm not a Tory. I, I mean, obviously I'm not. I wouldn't be able to sleep at night if I were. But I don't envy them having to make that call. They they just don't know the answer to it. 
Also back in the bunker, we have the Atlantic staff writer, Yasmin Serhan. Yasmin, Ramadan Mubarak. I hope I'm getting that right. Oh, you did. It's perfect. Thank you, Andrew. Ramadan Kareem. I'm doing uh, my best. <laughs> <laughs> How's your blood sugar? Oh, let's not talk about that. No, I'm okay. I'm just decaffeinated. So if I end up slurring my words at any point or sound any less comprehensible than usual, which I'm sure listeners probably knows. The, the base is pretty low. But yeah, anyway, I'm going to blame it on that. I'm not going to blame it on myself. They can just play it on 1.5 and it'll feel like old times. So I mean, it is depressing news from Hungary this week as Viktor Orban has won a fourth election in a row. Uh, he celebrated by taunting both the EU and Ukraine's President Zelensky, whom he called an opponent. And um, we were rather hoping for a turning point in the worldwide march of populism here. What, what does this result mean? Yeah, I mean, it was it was always, I think, going to be a long shot, um, just given the playing fields that the United opposition was dealing with. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, I, th- I think even those who were, you know, who are close to Fidesz and who are hoping for an Orban victory didn't expect the scale with which, um, you know, he secured another supermajority. Um, in, in the most immediate sense, what it means is that we're going to have four more years of Viktor Orban. Um, and, and we already know from the last 12 years that every year in which he's been in power, has meant the fur, you know, further attacks on Hungarian democracy, um, as well as on you know independent um, institutions, on its media, on its civil society. Um, I think that Orban was able to secure the supermajority that he did is is a testament to how well this system has worked in his party's favor. Um, just to look at the electoral map to to just see. Um, you know, how well Fidesz did, um, particularly in, in the rural parts of the country, which is, I think, where this election was decided. It's it's the place where the opposition, for many reasons, just haven't been able to make many inroads. Um, so, yeah, they unfortunately, they did secure some seats, but um, by no means were, were they able to secure the victory that they wanted. Um, and yeah, so that's kind of where we are. But in the short term, it also means that we're going to have a lot more of the same, right, especially as it relates to the war in Ukraine. Um, you know, so far we've seen that Orban has really tried to maintain something of a careful balancing act. You know, he joined the EU um, when it came to sanctioning Russia and accepting refugees on the one hand. But on the other hand, he's been pretty adamant about ruling out supplying Ukraine with lethal arms or allowing any of those weapons to pass through Hungary. And he's also been a very vocal opponent of any kind of embargo on Russian energy supplies. Um, Hungary and and Orban aren't the only ones that have that position, but I think that's a signal that we're going to see some more challenges for Europe um, as it kind of starts to think about what it's going to do next. It's worth noting that, you know, this is a position that has cost Orban a lot of friends in places like Poland and the Czech Republic um, and you know, I was I was struck by there was a tweet, I think, from the Czech foreign minister in response to Orban's reelection. He said that Hungary must choose its side and whether they belong to the EU and NATO. So I think um, Orban you know, has won this one reelection. He no longer has to worry about this. But I think when it comes to the EU and his place in it, he's definitely not out of the woods. Now emancipated BBC journalist and Chancellor of the University of Kent, Gavin Esler. Hi, Gavin. Free at last, dear God Almighty, free at last. (laughs) So in irony news this week, Nigel Farage is probably going to get a £16 million windfall from a green energy firm, even though he's calling for a referendum on net zero because of a lucky bit of uh, employment opportunity that happened. Well, you're tempting me into a <clears throat> very difficult area here, which is to suggest that people on the right and far right of politics can be hypocrites. I mean, I don't 
really, wait till this gets out. Wait till it, yes. I, I mean, it, what is the evidence? I, it's not as if we've got a, a whole lot of people in, uh, in the Conservative Party who are anti-Putin, but quite like the money from uh, his mm. friends, or it's not like uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg is anti-EU, but doesn't mind moving Somerset Capital, uh, some of, one of his finance companies, to, uh, to Dublin. So the idea that Nigel Farage is anti-Green, but quite likes the... The he's anti money. the green politics. It's actually the green paper that he's in. He's not <laughs> green anymore, though, is he? It's the, brown yeah, and blue, yeah. Exactly. The green paper, the green backs. When I, I first saw this story, it reminded me of I, I made a film once in the mountains of Tennessee in a dry county where mm. there was no alcohol. And I made a film with a local pastor and filmed with various people who were all talking about the evils of drink. And then I was taken by one of the guys uh, to an illegal drinking club where we got completely smashed. And I said to him at some point during the course of the evening, do you not see a degree of hypocrisy in this? And he said, round here, boy... We vote dry, but we drink wet. Oh, God. And somehow this guy who didn't have many teeth came into my mind when this story <laughs> about Nigel Farage making all the money came, came to mind. So he obviously is quite happy with the money and he obviously deserves it too. Let's be well, honest. I mean, we're going to have to face facts, aren't we? As You know, decarbonisation will be driven by or carried out by business and people we might not like are going to make quite a lot of money out of it. Well, I think that is actually, that is the really big story. The question is that, uh, I, I was on a, a, a series of uh, discussions about uh, the environment and how how we can decarbonize these hard to hard to uh, decarbonize industries. And somebody from Shell was appearing in one of the other parts of it, and there were there were protests about that. And I thought that was that w- that was wrong, not because Shell is perfect in any way, but actually, if they're going to be part of the problem, they have to be part of the solution. And to engage with them at least seemed to me a reasonable thing to do. So. I kind of agree with you. Uh, we, if we're going to be greener, it will depend upon a vast amount of investment and people will make a profit out of it. And that's kind of fine. I'm looking forward to seeing Nige in the green fields at Glastonbury this summer. That would be great fun. <laughs> Before the weekend, there's a lot of talk about a possible peace deal in Ukraine, brokered by Turkey perhaps, maybe including possibly painful concessions from Ukraine. This has been overtaken by the images of atrocities in Bucha, northwest of Kiev, of civilians found bound and shot dead, and images of mass graves. President Zelensky has condemned the Russian army as murderers, torturers and rapists. The Russians blame the massacres on the United States. Gavin, um, are peace talks dead as, as a result of this? And were there, was there any substance to them in the first place? I suppose it depends what you mean by peace, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, never mind what you mean by talks. For example... It is very, very difficult to see how the Ukrainian government and President Zelensky, after the horrors that we have uncovered, which I have to say, however shocking, were not entirely surprising, mm. given the brutality of uh, of Russian troops and their kind of uh, looting and pillaging. It's uh, unbelievable in some ways, but it's also predictable. The question is, can you deal with these people? And uh, do you trust them? And I don't think you could trust them, but you do have to deal with them. So I think the question of a peace deal possibly is is going to be something like uh, happens in, in Korea, where the division of a country is not accepted by one side, but there's de facto, there is a division, and we're going to have to live with it. And the question is, how far will West, well, the question for Western countries is how far are we going to stick by Ukraine if 
Russian forces are con- concentrated in the Donbass, and that's just another bite for Putin. Because right at the start of this, I I got it completely wrong. I couldn't believe that he would do that. Putin would do what he's doing. I thought what he would do would be just to take another bite. He's taken a bite out of Crimea. He took a bite out of Georgia, uh, and he, I thought he was just going to take a mm-hmm. bigger bite. And I think a lot of people thought that too. The fact that he has gone further, the question is whether he can be forced in some way to accept the reality that he's not going to conquer. Ukraine, the whole 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 amount of Ukraine, and to what kind of deal are we prepared to accept? And it may be an uneasy truce rather than a peace. A lot of these atrocities that have been revealed have been uncovered because the Russians are retreating; they are withdrawing from uh, occupied areas, committing atrocities on the way. Uh, Ukraine has put investigators on the ground. The UN is talking about this too, but the likelihood of actually being able to pin anyone down and prosecute them is slim. Can the Ukraine? negotiate with perpetrators of genocide as, as the fact that these uh, war crimes have, uh, have taken place sort of up the ante as it were? Well that's going to be very difficult but obviously the, the other part of it is all the cards are not in Putin's hands. Putin has got uh, immense uh, problems. I was talking to somebody who is, uh, is a defence analyst and who's got quite strong connections with uh, British intelligence who said there's all kinds of things to watch. One is the fact, to put it simply, that the FSB, the Russian intelligence service and the army hate each other. At the top mm. level, they don't trust each other, they hate each other. So that, that jockeying has been going on for years and there have been some arrests, as we know, and some people have uh, had a heart attack, mm. apparently. Yeah, um, funny that. Uh, the defense secretary. So uh, th- th- there's all kinds of things going on in Russia and, of course, the economy is going to be hurting. But it would seem that if we uh, – that the kind of information that most Russians are receiving is nonsense and that is – you know, uh, to, to go back to the start of our, our program, most people – in most countries, have more things on their mind than politics. Mm. And perhaps many Russians are not paying very much attention, although they'll start to do when the bodies come home. So I'm just saying that it's not it's not going to be easy for either side. But So that's why I suspect this may go on for months, perhaps much longer. Korea has been going on since the 1950s, and there's yeah. no, still no peace there. There's been renewed and quite terrifying rhetoric about denazification coming from Russian propaganda media. Uh, arguing that Ukraine has shown itself to be a Nazi state by resisting. Um, you know, sh- should, are we going to have to brace ourselves for worse than what we've seen so far, do you think? Well, uh, you are, I don't know what the Russian words are. I don't speak Russian, but I do speak some German. The German is untermenschen. If you, t- if you yeah. say that people are sub, effectively subhumans, they're not the same as us, uh, which is the, the Nazi term for, for some people. Uh, if, if you're doing the same thing in Russia, essentially saying the Ukrainians are so terrible, they are Nazis, they're worse, they're worse mm. than human beings, then you're setting people up for accepting all kinds of things in that name. And that's obviously what, what is happening. On the other hand, again, because of the two sides to this, the, if, you're, if you're a Ukrainian fighting for your country, are you likely to surrender to these people? And the mm. answer is no. Are you likely to be more determined than ever? The answer is yes. And are you likely at the political level to get more arms from other people? The answer is probably yes. Yasmin, um, this war has already failed in Putin's original terms. The the idea that he could sweep into Ukraine, take it, remove the leadership, install a puppet leadership is, is now pretty much ruled out. Uh, what position has it, has it left Putin in? 
Brian Klaus, who who listeners of this podcast um, are, are familiar with, he had a really great piece in the Atlantic. Um, I, I would say that obviously, but it actually is a really great piece, <laughs> and and you all should read it. Um, which is um, the headline for which was that Vladimir Putin has fallen into the dictator trap, um, and effectively what he described is is what we've been hearing from from American and British intelligence um, officials as well, which is that. Um, Putin has basically put himself in a trap of his own making, which is that those closest to him, his advisors, are effectively having to lie to him, uh, presumably because perhaps they're too scared to tell him the alternative of what's really going on in the country. Um, I'll, I'll just quote a bit of Brian because I think he describes it really well. But basically, he, he says that dictators, you know, they only hear from sycophants. Um, and as a result, they get bad advice. You know, they misunderstand their population. They don't see the threats coming until it's too late. The worst case scenario, this is probably the biggest fear, is that you know many of these dictators miscalculate to the point that you know they they end up being brought down by violence or otherwise. And and so I think what we've seen with Putin is that he's now in a situation where, as you say, it wasn't as quick, it wasn't as easy as perhaps he had originally thought or intended, and now as observers from the outside, we're kind of questioning and obviously, you know, the Western authorities are, are kind of offering their own intelligence on this matter, just how much Putin knows and just how, you know, how much of the reality he's aware of and to what extent that is feeding in to the brutality that we're seeing on the ground. You know, is it the case that he's unaware and just thinks he can fight through it? Or is it the case that actually he's very aware of the fact that Russia is is certainly not winning this war? Um, I, I don't know if it's quite correct to say that they're losing either, um, but that perhaps that's the reason that they've gone to these extreme levels. Um, but it's, of course, worth mentioning that, unfortunately, the, the horrific scenes that we're seeing out of Kiev and elsewhere, um, you know, we we saw them in Grozny, um, in, in Chechnya, we, we saw them in Aleppo, in Syria. I mean, unfortunately, this is a pattern uh, that the Russian military has, has established quite well. And yeah, I, th- I think the, the fear, of course, is, is that we just continue to see more of that, if not worse. But it's hard to really imagine seeing worse images than the ones that we saw in recent days. A couple of weeks ago, the White House had to hastily walk back Joe Biden's ad lib about Putin not being allowed to remain in power. But today, Biden has said that Putin's a war criminal and, and called for a trial. He's been pretty robust. And yet his approval ratings on the war are collapsing. 56% of Americans think he's not tough enough. Why are so? Why are Americans so unimpressed by what has been a pretty robust response from Biden, do you think? It's a good question because, you know, the polling really is interesting. I was struck by, you know, just how much it seems, you know, we've talked, I think, a lot on this podcast about how there's very little that Americans agree on today. There seems to be a pretty robust majority um, bipartisan uh, support for the U.S. taking a strong line on this uh, for supporting Ukraine. And and you're right that, you know, Biden has been pretty forceful in his language. Um, he's overseen sanctions um, and military aid to, to Ukraine. Um, the, the U.S. announced that they're going to accept up to 100,000 refugees fleeing the country as well. Um, and of course, Biden has also had that really interesting strategy from the start of declassifying U.S. intelligence um, on what Russia is doing in, in an apparent attempt to deter them from you know, trying to stage any false flag operations. But at the same time, of course, you know, the U.S. 
has been somewhat cautious in trying not to do anything that would put itself and by extension NATO into direct conflict with Russia, which has in turn meant, you know, repeatedly turning down Ukrainian requests for a no-fly zone. Um, and I was actually surprised to see that there are quite a few Americans who disagree with that. Um, according to a recent study by Brookings, some 56% um, of respondents said that they support enforcing a no-fly zone over Ukraine, including 52% of Republicans and 61% of Democrats. Now, of course, that's that's not, you know, an overwhelming majority. That's a pretty slim majority. Um, and you have to compare it against the significant majority of Americans who also do not want to send U.S. troops to Ukraine and who are you know, concerned about the potential for escalation, particularly nuclear escalation. So, yeah, it's, it's kind of it's hard to to say, really. I mean, I think Americans could also I, I, I do suspect that there's probably an element of partisanship that's entering into this even though there's a lot of American agreement when it comes to supporting Ukraine, this is still the United States we're talking about. This is still the country of culture wars. Um, you're not going to find too many Republicans, um, even those who potentially su- support U- Ukraine and, and, and helping Ukraine, you're not going to find many of them praising Biden and, and his decision making here. So I, that could also speak to it. But I think there's also a healthy bit of fear over the impact that the war is going to potentially have at home domestically, the s- same as we're seeing here, of course. But yeah, I suspect that might be that might be why. And also, I mean, it's a last point is worth mentioning that, you know, it, it's hard to see the images that have been coming out of Ukraine and feeling like we're doing a good job. I mean, we know that the we've seen, you know, pretty incredible international response to what's happening with Ukraine and, you know, unprecedented sanctions and things like that. But I think it's it's hard to really see those images and see what's happening. And and it, it's worth mentioning too that Zelensky is very popular in the United States, like as as I'm sure he is around the world. So to see him coming in his like video statements night after night increasingly angry, increasingly frustrated, you know, it's, I think it is hard to sort of label everything a a success, a mission accomplished, as it were. I was in your uh, lovely home state of California a couple of weeks ago and, you know, lots of Ukraine flags all over the place, beautiful, you know, beautiful place, everybody really kind of strongly um, supporting Ukraine. And I saw, but I did see a bumper sticker which said, impeach Biden, fair enough, you expect that, and next to it a Russian flag which amazed me, particularly in Northern California. Uh, You know, as a representative of that fringe, uh, I think the Atlantic called it Putin is bad, comma, but this is beyond even that. This is is pro-Putin. Is that kind of Trumpian real politic acceptance of Putin as a, hey, he's a strong guy, he's the kind of guy that we'd need ourselves, is that sustainable after Ukraine, do you think? I don't think so. I think it's a it's a policy that's certainly fashionable within certain subsets of the American right. And I'm thinking of the Trumpian type. I mean, Trump himself praised Putin, um, I believe, at the beginning of this crisis. So I think that's certainly something that I could see. And, and that piece is, is also well worth reading. You know, it, it talks about how it, it caters to a very specific kind of right-wing, very US-centric audience. And and it's an interesting argument too, because it's not one that necessarily placates Putin like that bumper sticker you saw. It's not one that sort of talks about his strength, but it's sort of a way of trying to have it both ways. They're like, yes, Putin is bad, but we don't want nuclear war. Yes, Putin is bad, but, you know, is it really our problem? Um, and I, I, so far from what we've seen, I think, is that um, 
that hasn't been a very dominant narrative. Not that I've seen anyway among mainstream Republicans. I think largely those who are opposed to what's happening and um, you know, opposed to, to what Putin's done and think it's out of line is is the narrative that has reigned supreme. But, you know, who knows what happens with the midterms if Trump becomes more vocal. Uh, it would be interesting to sort of track his statements on this. Um, but yeah, for, for, the, for now, I, I think that's a pretty niche viewpoint. I'd be curious to know whether the driver of that vehicle is actually from California. There are certain like red, red pockets, but even that seems pretty... Um, yeah, pretty extreme. I don't know where I'd place that in the United States. Frankly, if I told you it was in Marin County, that would really freak you out, wouldn't it? I, honestly, I would have kicked this guy's oh, yeah. headlights in, but there we go. Um, Tom, um, Boris Johnson has embraced the role of war leader with um, great gusto. After Bucher, he's been urging that there should be no settlement at all until Ukraine holds the whip hand. Um, do you think Boris Johnson has made any, I mean, much as we might, despise him. Has he made a positive difference or just a lot of noise on this? Well, there's no doubting that Ukrainians and the Ukraine leadership feel like the UK in particular has delivered in one key area, and that's providing military assistance. And the UK is also extremely fortunate that it's not dependent on Russian oil and gas, as we have our own substantial fossil fuel reserves. And so we're lucky not to be compromised in the way that Germany in particular is in its dependence on Russian oil. But Boris Johnson has found it easy to be, be a, to embrace this role that you as you describe but he's found it easy in the way that kind of every leader has found it easy in the sense that they've they've done well the things that it's easy for them to do to, to do like the uk and boris johnson have found it easy to play to their own particular strengths in this case namely providing military support but for decades leading up to this crisis any serious analyst of kremlin malfeasance has not been shy of drawing attention to what is london's key role which is as a safe haven for dirty Russian money. And there is also no serious analyst that believes that very much has been done to do anything about that. Grant Shapps has gone and had his picture taken standing next to a yacht owned by some oligarch who hasn't even been sanctioned. There have been some headline-grabbing stuff about sanctions, uh, the scrapping of the golden visa, but the rot goes too deep and for too long and has been allowed to go on for too long for anything meaningful to be done overnight in response to all of this. So Johnson has done a very good job at doing the easy bits and has found it hard, just as every other leader in Europe has found it hard to do the harder bits for them, whichever they may be. It is interesting that we saw a, a massive coverage of oligarch money, a massive coverage of Conservatives' dependence on Russian donations. You know, to take one example, they've had around £2 million since 2012 from a Russian ex-banker called Lubov Chernukin, whose husband, mm. Vladimir, just happens to be a former deputy finance minister under, under Putin. We've heard all these stories, and yet there seems the, – the, the actual movement on it is – you know, it's the sanctioning of conspicuous individuals and very little else. I mean, is, uh, have we gone in too deep with the Russians in this country for anything meaningful to be done, you know, uh, uh, on a shorter timescale than the life of a parliament? Is it a, is it a major kind of uh, invasive surgery project for Britain now? Well, other people have considering more expertise on this subject than me, but the books like the, Catherine Belton's book about Putin's people and all, and Oliver Bullows has done all that stuff on... Um, on how long it's been going on for the City of London, the law firms that do all this stuff, and they have done it for such a long time, that there is no way that Putin can invade Ukraine and suddenly all of we can just 
shut down the laundry overnight. There's no chance of that happening. It hasn't come close to happening. There's been a certain amount of pretense that it has happened. One thing that is clear is that I would think the Conservative Party would think twice in future about whether the few hundred thousand, the few hundred grand they get from playing tennis with Lubov Chernikin playing tennis with half the cabinet now makes them look massively compromised by them. And, 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 and I would think the damage done by that far outweighs the benefits of the comparatively small amount of money that's donated. But they've not done much to, re- to retroactively change what's, but what's been going on for such a long time. I mean, they've, they've, they've ended the Golden Visa Programme, right? Well, it's a joke that it ever existed. No other major country anywhere in the world does has, has this sort of ridiculous thing that we had. I mean, Yasmin, one of the other guests, I assume, is a US citizen, so has been living in the UK for quite a long time, but I imagine will be paying tax to the US forevermore wherever she lives on the planet, even though she doesn't receive any of their public services whatsoever, really. Meanwhile, over here, you can live here and you can claim that because you sort of feel like you're mainly foreign, then you can be a non-dom and basically pay no tax here at all. Uh, that, and that, that is the only reason that Russian money and, and other foreign money is here. It's not here because of the glorious weather and the glorious beaches we're here because we have always made up, we've set up our economy to be highly um, attractive to large amounts of foreign money that, that we, and we will look the other way from it. And we definitely don't seem to have the wit at this point to do what's need, needed to be done to remedy any of it. And probably, probably we don't even want to. Well, maybe the Conservative Party should be encouraged to give the sums of money, not, of course, back to the people who gave it to them because they can afford it, but give it to a Ukrainian charity fund or something. I mean, there's a number of Conservative MPs who've taken individually for their constituencies or whatever donations. There's the money that's gone into Conservative Party headquarters. I don't see why they shouldn't be shamed into giving it to a Ukrainian charity or something that doesn't put it back into the pockets from which it came. Ian Dunce of our sister podcast, Oh God, What Now?, has written about the risk of Ukraine news fatigue, that this story, while terrible and horrific, is also repetitive. And we may uh, run the risk of it turning from a page one story into a page three story into a page five story. Is that a real danger, do you think? Um, Well, Ian is obviously great, but I am personally always wary of this very sort of egocentric view, like British-centric view or or, or whichever country-centric view, that the battle for Ukraine is being won or lost on the front pages of British newspapers, that we're somehow important in this. We're slightly important. We're providing considerable military assistance to the Ukrainian armed forces and the Ukrainian people. But, I mean, I find it quite laughable, for instance, that our Prime Minister has has pretty obviously lied to the House of Commons, but there's a view that we'll have to let it go because another country decided to start a war somewhere else. You know, we go on about our values, but we can quietly ignore them when somebody else makes us. I mean, very soon after the start of this conflict, everybody I spoke to, including some pretty senior people in the Foreign Office, all very quickly said that the clear direction of travel is a long, slow war of attrition, Russia unable to defeat a massive country fighting in its own homeland, and it will be and, and it's fighting a, an armed forces that will be provided with a continual flow of weapons across borders with NATO countries, right? That it will be long and drawn out. Um, and Western countries have been more united in their response and have gone further with it than maybe Putin was expecting. But I don't think they've been driven to that point of unity by media attention, right? They've done it because it's absolutely in their interest. It's so clear what, what, what must be done and what, and what has to happen. And I don't think any of that action is being driven by the fear of negative front pages if they do. You know, this is potentially going on for, for quite a very long time. Um, and, you, and you can't make people interested in the same thing every day and night. You just can't. 
And the, these people in Buka massacred in the street, and the world obviously didn't find out for a little while after. I don't quite see how media attention to their plight is acting as any kind of deterrent to Putin or to Russia, who has done this at the height of the media attention on the war. He, he doesn't care about it in the slightest. I, 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 don't, I don't think it's that, you know, often the media keep leaders on their toes and, and force them to do things that they otherwise wouldn't. But I think it's so clear what has to happen with regard to Ukraine and with regard to the response to Putin that it already has happened. And I don't think Putin cares whether or not some other domestic issue temporarily takes over the front pages. And I don't think it makes very much difference to the war effort either, actually. Now, how's your gas bill? And did you enjoy setting up till midnight to try and put a meter reading in last week? Last Friday, millions of people felt the impact of an unprecedented rise in energy bills. The Governor of the Bank of England, Andrew Bailey, said the country is facing the biggest single shock from energy prices since the 1970s, with a 54% increase in a cap on energy prices, the largest since it was introduced. Official figures suggest that four in ten bill payers have been finding it very or somewhat difficult to afford their energy costs, with over 22 million households affected. Tom... This is pretty much the biggest rise in energy bills Britain's ever seen. How ready do you think the country was for this uh, hike in prices? Well, not ready at all. It's terrifying. It's full on terrifying. I was looking at some of the numbers in this last week. Um, If you earn 36K and your partner earns 36K a year, so say you're a teacher and you're married to a PA, then the Institute for Fiscal Studies thinks that you have such an astronomically high level of income that you don't even get to be in its graph of UK income distribution because you'll basically break the graph, right? So you're so if you're a teacher or a PA, the chances are you're so loaded that the IFS doesn't even bother to calculate how much disposable income you've got. And I'm pretty sure that your average teacher, your average PA, is really not quite sure where they're going to find the extra 100 quid a month to, to pay their bills that has already started and an extra 100 quid on top of that potentially in October. And that's the top end, right? That's the top, top, top end. At the middle and the bottom, at the very bottom, it's just beyond terrifying. For millions and millions and millions of people, overnight, the numbers have just stopped adding up. And there's no way the government gets how serious how serious it is to, for so many people to just be broken by a doubling in cost of absolutely basic essentials. For nothing material in your life to have changed, apart from a heating bill rising to a level that you can't pay it anymore. Um, the only way we won't be remembering this moment for a long time to come is if something meaningful is done about it and nothing meaningful has been done about it so far or if prices fall away again quite quickly. And analysis out today suggests that that won't happen, 2026 at the earliest, and that will require some sort of quick resolution to the war in Ukraine and potentially what that what is meant by that is for it to be fine for everyone to buy Russian oil and gas again. Um, and I think there's a consensus of opinion now that whatever happens in the war in Ukraine, short of you know, massive sort of liberalised regime change in Russia, it won't be okay to keep buying Russian oil and gas again. So this is extremely serious. And yes, it's an extremely serious moment matched by the fact that nobody really seems to have, a, is really doing anything about it. Charity bosses are reporting uh, members of middle-class families kind of falling into poverty, using food banks. How are we hitting a political tipping point on energy prices and inflation when it's not just the hundreds of thousands of people who've been suffering for you know, needing food banks throughout the you know, since 2010 who are suffering, but it's actually you know the middle classes who traditionally have voted conservative. Is this you know what kind of a political tipping point might this be? Well, yeah, we absolutely have reached a tipping point. Histor- hist- historically, 
Um, when things get difficult for the middle classes, it gets difficult for the Tories, like poll tax, for example. You know, when you cut universal credit, you clobber the powerless and the voiceless and you basically get away with it. Most people, and certainly the people who've influenced public conversation, haven't got a clue what it's like to live on universal credit and have your life brutalised by a £20 a week cut. And of course, I include myself in that. But everybody, everybody is going to feel this. I mean, I'm feeling I may have already said this on this podcast. If I have, I apologise. But I saw Nick Hewer, you know, Alan Sugar's mate, um, on the TV a couple of weeks ago, wide-eyed in disbelief at the new energy bill estimate he'd been sent. And the thing is, the richer you are, the more houses you've got, the more energy you use. And, you know, you're getting letters saying that from April, your energy bill is going to be a grand and a half a month. So those people are completely outraged as well. And if you if you unite everybody in this complete horror show, then there will, clear, there will be clear political consequences. And it really doesn't seem as if Rishi Sunak is aware of those political consequences. And what makes it worse is that Labour are, are, are actually offering a concrete alternative solution, you know, a, a windfall tax on energy companies who now admit they've got more money, more money than they know what to do with. And the and as a, as a result, £600 a year cut for the, the, the most worse off families. Now, if the Conservatives are not going to have any sort of response to that, they can they can expect there to be meaningful consequences for them, yes, unless they do something about it. Gavin, um, a poll for the Labour List website found that the Conservatives are now seen as a party of high taxation. More voters, 39%, uh, think that uh, that's the case than think Labour is the party of high taxation. They were at 27%. What happens when you blow it on your core issue so badly? They've blown it on their core issue and they've blown it with uh, their core electorate as well. Um, there's a couple of obvious things about this that, that really, really strike me. One is um, I've, got a, I've got a friend who's a organic farmer. Mm-hmm. He sent me a message that he's been giving to his customers and he's saying – Half a dozen organic eggs from next week is going to go up by 25%. 25%. And he said, this is the bit that really got me, because the cost of organic poultry feed has increased by 60% over the past couple of years and has just gone up £125 a tonne. From, uh, it's gone up from uh, up to £802.50 a tonne. Now, he's a small business person. There are small businesses all over the place who are also hurting. There are people who are seeing their taxes going up because of national insurance. And they're also seeing Rishi Sunak filling up somebody else's car. Um, Now, he is, of course, not responsible for the fact that his wife is one of the richest people in the world or that his father-in-law founded a great company. And that's all absolutely fine. But when you are exposed as being a phony because you're engaged in a phony photo op. It's almost as bad as wearing a fur hat and pretending you're driving a tank. You know, this this cuts to the heart of the difference between the reality for people and what they're being told and what they're being sold. My, my grandmother, when I, my friend Richard sent me the, the, the story about his eggs, I did think of my grandmother who always used to say, what's that got to do with the price of eggs when, when politicians in particular were talking nonsense? And I think this has got to do with the price of eggs, the price of food, the price of fuel and everything else. So they are hurting the Conservatives are indeed hurting at their core electorate. The question is whether, to go back to Tom's point, if Labour's got a plan, are people going to listen to that plan? Are they able to communicate that plan in a way that – because Boris Johnson's genius, and I don't use that phrase very often, has been setting tomorrow morning's headlines with hmm. a, bl- a blithe sort of phrase of levelling up or global Britain or whatever it is. And he does that very well. And Labour can have stacks and stacks of policies, but it doesn't necessarily cut through. I mean, it's the difference between Hillary Clinton who had policies on everything and Donald Trump who had a few slogans. And Labour have got to – 
be able to communicate, and the other opposition parties too, that they have got an alternative that people can understand about the price of eggs and other things. The really striking thing about it is that it seems to be just a complete loss of organisational memory in the Tory party. When you've got a situation where, I mean, there's a story this week about how badly hospitality is going to be hit, you know, doubly hit by gas and electric rises because it's an energy intensive business, can't get the staff because of Brexit, they're losing their VAT exemption because it's not being extended after the uh, after the pandemic. This is another core constituency of the Conservative Party. It's like everybody in the party has forgotten what happened in the 1970s and the events that brought Margaret Thatcher to power. It's like they are in the role of the complacent 1970s government. Yeah, that's that is absolutely true. Uh, and the idea that we've moved on, again, as Tom was saying, that the, the, the conservative view of things is, oh, that was in the past about Partygate and we've moved on, we've moved on. This we will absolutely not move on from because I, what what worries me is it's, it's not great weather at the moment. But can you imagine what things are going to be like in October, November, December, mm. coming up to Christmas um, when people have had six months or more of these ex- extra bills and are trying to think, how are we on earth are we going to celebrate Christmas in this country with this kind of state of affairs and the things that matter to most of us? And just one other thing, I think as we may have discussed this on the, on the program before, on the podcast before, some of the prices of the absolute staple foods have gone up quite considerably, as Jack Monroe and others have pointed yes. out. And that is a real problem. And that's why I go back to the price of eggs. Not everybody affords organic eggs, but all eggs price, all egg prices are going to go up. Prices of cucumbers are going to go up because people who grow them can't afford to heat them, heat the, um, hmm. the places where they're grown. So this is going to be stuff that we are going to be talking about for a very long time, it seems to me. Yes, I mean, it's not just obviously Britain that's suffering from price rises. American inflation has reached 7.5% in February, the highest figure since 1982. Um, are American voters mentally ready for inflation on a 1970s scale? Do you think? Uh, no, <laughs> um, I, mm. I, I was looking at polling earlier, and you know, they're, they're, I think Americans are more worried about inflation now than at any point since the, the time you just mentioned. Um, it, it tends to, I mean, obviously this this will hit um, people on lower incomes harder, and we're seeing more of the concern coming from there. Um, there's also a bit of a partisan distinction, which I think is interesting. More Republicans tend to be um, seriously worried about inflation uh, compared to Democrats. But I mean, I think by and large, yeah, you know, this is, it's worth putting it into context. You know, we've, I say we, and I mean, Americans, but I I think, you know, this applies to Brits just as much, you know, we've kind of all come around to the idea that the economy has been severely affected by the pandemic. There have been supply chain issues and things like that. And, you know, of course now there's rising gas prices, but, but I think the, the extent, which I think, Tom and Gavin just explained really clearly is, I mean, that's just, I think that's going to be hard to stomach, um, especially over a longer term period, especially when it feels like it does in the United States, like things are getting better, right? Like the, the, the U.S. economy is actually doing pretty well. I mean, at least in terms of like job creation and stuff like that, like things have been going pretty well. And, you know, obviously society had opened that back up quite a bit, but unfortunately, um, yeah, inflation is, is kind of, I think, casting a bit of a shadow on all of that. It is strange, isn't it? Because you know, Biden is paying quite a heavy price for this, even though, as you said, the, the economy is strong. Is it the kind of situation where you know, American society has become so uh, polarised that people are willing to put up with something when their guy is in, but when the other guy is in, suddenly it becomes a crisis? You know, we, we, we saw it with, uh, you know, the, the health of the public finances in the United States. Yeah, to an extent. I mean, I think it was a lot easier for, like, say, when Trump was in office to blame the pandemic because it was raging. Um, and which isn't to say, of course, that it's ended. Um, 
you know, of course, we've, we've seen the, the case numbers here in Britain are, are quite, um, quite high, but hospitalizations, thankfully, don't seem to be following in the way that they were before. Um, but yeah, I mean, in the US, you know, I, it, um, the, in the Washington Post, it was reported that the US has seen 11 straight months of job growth, um, with little signs of it slowing down, which is pretty extraordinary, given just, you know, where we were not lo- not that long ago. And wages have been going up too. But um, unfortunately, because of inflation, that, you know, Americans who managed to keep their jobs during the pandemic, unfortunately, may be in a worse position now than they were before the economy tanked. What this means for Biden, in, in effect, I think, is that even if he did a lot of great things to, to save the economy, because of inflation, he's not exactly in a position to do a victory lap. Before we move on, Gavin, before we uh, started recording the podcast, you, you had a rather nightmare scenario about the price of wheat and the fact that uh, war in Ukraine has sent not just you know fuel prices rocketing, but also the, uh, the price of bread in regions that are exceptionally uh, sensitive to that, particularly in the Middle East. Uh, Ukraine is, uh, Egypt is the world's biggest wheat importer. 80% of its imported grain comes from Russia and Ukraine. This is the kind of thing that's caused revolutions. Uh, literally revolution. I go to uh, the Middle East quite a lot and uh, quite a lot of friends there. And one of the things that they all say is that uh, riots about bread are never just about bread. Mm. They're about everything else. And so Egypt, uh, the price of bread is, has been heavily subsidised. Now the Egyptian government's got all kinds of problems. How do they afford that? Plus importing oil and other things. As we know, Tunisia, it, it was uh, the, the riot started over foods and so on. So we've got a very volatile area of the world where people are going to have the same problems that we've got, perhaps magnified by the importance of wheat and wheat imports from Ukraine. So that's going to be very, very difficult. Finally, would you put a book on your shelf if you hadn't read it yet and you didn't even maybe intend to get round to it? The American actress Ashley Tisdale, famed for her role in the high school musical films apparently, has admitted that she asked her husband to buy 400 books to fill their empty bookcases before a camera crew came round to film them. Depending on who you are, this is either perfectly reasonable or tantamount to criminal activity. Yasmin, do you read every single book you own? How big is the unread pile? Uh, um, okay, I, I'll caveat with it. it. It is quite big, the unread pile, but <laughs> it's not because of a lack of aspiration to read the books. I Every book I own has either been, I bought it because I wanted to read it or it was gifted to me. And my friends tend to know what type of books I like. So yeah, no, I, I don't read, I haven't, I guess I should say, read every book that I own. That said, I don't buy books for like, window dressing. I don't really have the the bookshelf space for that sort of thing, which is why often like when I finish a book, I have to really like it in order to keep it. Often I'll just try to like give it to a friend who I think will like it or cuz just cuz I need the space, otherwise I'll never be able to buy books again. That's refreshing because I've always found it kind of weird the idea that you you have to treat your bookshelf as a kind of trophy wall, you know, of everything that's uh, you know, the, the stuff you've read. And I always, I always think that, like, it doesn't, get, it doesn't go on the shelf until you've read the whole thing. It's okay for it to be in the pile because you're not saying, you're not saying done. But when it goes on the shelf, you have to have completed the thing <laughs> and also want to hang on to it. Were you surprised what uh, Ashley Tizzle had to say about just, like, buying a job lot of books to uh, create the impression that you are a well-read and rounded individual? Uh, no, but I think that's because as someone who watched High School Musical as a kid, like, quite mm-hmm. a lot... Um, that sounds exactly like the sort of thing Sharpay Evans, her character, would have done. So I wasn't nice. I wasn't terribly surprised there. Um, but you know what? I don't think I like shared in the uproar that the internet had over it. I mean, I thought it was kind of refreshing that she was so honest about it. But also, if you think about the impact, 
she sent her husband to go buy 400 books, <laughs> presumably from a bookstore. Um, so not only did she help a bookstore, but she also like supported a bunch of authors. Now, I don't know what books she bought. Um, and obviously I wouldn't, I don't certainly don't have the money or the shelf space to go like buy hundreds of books um, for aesthetic purposes. But I, I'm not opposed to to <laughs> to her owning it and and saying, you know what, I did it for this purpose. And frankly, I've seen some of the Zoom backgrounds that people have, especially like during the pandemic, and I refuse to believe that all of those are natural. I would not be surprised if there was a bit of, you know, orchestrating going on there. And look, I don't think it's a bad thing. If you have the books and then hopefully you'll read them. I mean, if Ashley Tisdale reads just one of those books, I think it will have been worth it. Yes. <laughs> Gavin, how about you? I've got, I've got a, my, my copy of How Britain Ends is, uh, is proudly on show, available in all good bookshops. Do you, do you, how do you feel about the uh, you know when the book goes on the red shelf? I, I, I have a pile of books that I've not read. Uh, most of them are beside my bed, so I'm aspirational. Mm-hmm. I just don't get this story. I mean, is this, you know, I thought Yasmin was very kind, but is this lady... <laughs> Getting somebody else to buy books because she feels she should live in a house where there are a lot of books because she wants to look smarter than she is. And then she tells everybody that she's got her husband to buy the books. Is, is, is that the story? In which it's, case, it's an odd one, isn't it? If, you, I, if that's what you'd done, you wouldn't let on. I would, I would hide that one. Is that, Yasmin, you help me. It's my understanding that it's because Architectural Digest was coming over for a home tour and she wanted <laughs> a shelf to look good. Well, I, I tell you that this gets us into an area which I'm going to alienate some of our listeners here because the bit I don't like is when people color code the books. There's the yellow section, the blue section, the red right. section. Have you seen oh, that? No, which I is have, obviously yeah. architectural. What is that about? I mean, do you, you know, my, I admit my bookshelves are a bit of a mess and they need dusting and all that kind of stuff. And I kind of think that this is this is fiction here and poetry there or something. Yeah. And it never is. But why would you colour code your books? What what is that about, folks? I I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, go uh, contrarian on this one. It maybe it's easier to find them that way. You know, at the back of your mind, just as an album cover has a visual identity, and you can mm. sometimes go, like, oh, I don't know the colour of that spine, just drag it out. But maybe, then, then how, you put a, a yellow Dickens in with a yellow, I, I don't know, encyclopedia. I, I, it, uh, it, it, Tom, help. <laughs> <laughs> Tom, I, I, well, they they do they do make for decent home decor books, and I I, I can't. I, they, I mean, actually, um, have you ever watched um um you know the remake of Queer Eye? Um, 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 they in that show always turn the books round so that the um so that the the the, the pages oh. are facing the camera rather than the spines. And people, people were so horrified by this that they complained. And the um, the home decor expert on Queer Eye explained that actually, if they have the book um, spines facing outwards, beady-eyed authors will genuinely make make them pay royalties. So one of the things they have, so one of the things they have to do is um is put them is put them page page out, and it sort of looks quite nice in a way. But you'll definitely never be able to find one that way. No, if you like, it's so if you, it's basically beige wallpaper except made of books. Um, <laughs> 
So, but I mean, what I want to know is how different is this from sort of, as we mentioned earlier, you know, crafting your Zoom background. There's a whole lot of dishonest Zoom background going on out there. And in fact, Tom, your independent colleague, Sean O'Grady, wrote that I decided to replace the two-volume biography of Adolf Hitler and I realised <laughs> people might be able to see it. And if, if my bookshelf was was uh, seen clearly on Zoom, on, on Newsnight, you'd just see a load of Marvel comics and, yes, books about Hitler. Is, is, it, is it okay to uh, edit it, uh, to present the kinder side of yourself? Or the smarter side. Well, one of the interesting, obviously, one of the interesting things about the pandemic is people were very going on like Sky News or what have you. Very quickly found that the best thing to do is to stand in front of their bookshelf. Now, the only way in which I curated mine is because when you do go on Sky News or what have you, um, not only do you want to have some books behind you, but you genuinely need to have a bit of a pile of books to balance the um, the laptop on. So all I really ever did was make sure that if there was any, if there's any bookshelves, if there's any books in my bookshelves of people that I knew. I deliberately took them out and piled them up so, so as to not give them the satisfaction. But, um, the, only, the only way in which the, the only way in, in terms of like being judged by household objects, the only way that I've really ever got it badly wrong was I've still got two um, vote leave mugs on rotation, and I absentmindedly once gave one to a Lithu- Lithuanian plumber who um, came. Who was, and, um, I genuinely think he responded by deliberately oh sabotaging my old boiler. Then I had to replace it a year later, but I can't say as I especially blame. <laughs> Jacob Rees-Mogg supposedly did one of his video podcasts from my library and there were no books in it. It was just a load of chintzy furniture and a view out on the rolling grounds of Rees-Mogg Manor. It's like, it's a library. It should be full of books. What are you doing? <laughs> You're very old school there, I, I am. think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, all right, then, before we, we wrap up, what have we started and never finished? Gavin, what have you started and never finished? Oh, uh, quite a lot of Henry James. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I've got this thing about Henry James. I don't know, don't know why. Um, I tried the Princess Casamassima, mm-hmm. uh, and then I, actually, it's not quite right. What I did do was after I got a bit into it and realized it was boring, I would <laughs> skip 10 pages. And if nothing had changed, I'd skip 20 pages. Mm. And then by the end, I was skipping 100 pages a time. Yeah, still so going. So Henry James, uh, and, and I'm, I'm sure it's just me. I'm sure he's great. Yasmin, what have you started and never finished? I was going to say, I'm actually like, I've, over the years, I've become more comfortable with if I'm just not into a book after a certain period of time, letting it go. So I don't want to like pinpoint too many books. I will say when I was a kid, I remember in being in the airport, I bought Lord of the Rings because that sounded mm-hmm. fun. It was not. I could not. I was I was like, <laughs> but, but then I took my mom's copy of The Kite Runner and read that instead. And that mm-hmm. was better. I was probably mm-hmm. too young for that. But I found it better than The Lord of the Rings. So, yeah, The Lord of the Rings couldn't do it. Probably won't try again. That's a, that's a great cover quote. Better than The Lord of the Rings. <laughs> Tom, how about you? What have you started and never finished? Oh, well, War and Peace. But I have this with so many books. I'll, I'll read the first six chapters, lose interest, and then come back to it a year later and think, well, I might as well just start again from the beginning. And so now I reckon I've read the first six chapters of War and Peace maybe 10 or 20 times. And so if Tolstoy thinks I'm reading them all again, he can just do one, frankly. Um, that, that book's <laughs> lost to me now, and and and, um, and and in many ways, it's quite good that we don't have to read any Russian literature anymore. So I, I, I won that. Yes, one. it's almost um, it's almost suspect, isn't it? Well, my confession, pathetically, Ulysses tried it many times. It's like trying, it's like you know running up to try and get over a pole vault. Just can't do it. I haven't got it in me. Oh, that that you know, you know, it's the fortieth anniversary of Ulysses this year, um, and I did not realise that James Joyce deliberately published he deliberately published that book. Um, on his 40th birthday. Um, and it's an extremely depressing fact to find out on your own 40th birthday, which is exactly what happened to me. 
News, your favourite history nerds are back. Yes, we at We Are History have been trawling the history shelves of our local bookshops. Well, I have, John. You mostly went round finding your books and moving them to the front of the displays. If I can find them, it's a bonus. We are ready to tell you all about what we've learned, from the revolting French to some revolting women. Via some Brits abroad and a foul-mouthed Irishman. So, download We Are History. Our laughable attempt at a silly history podcast. With me, John O'Farrell. And me, Angela Barnes. Wherever you get your podcasts. And that brings us to the end of this week's Bonker and therefore Escape Routes. One of the films, TV shows, books, music, activities, whatever, that are providing our panellists with a soothing escape and respite from the news. Tom Peck, how about you? Well, last week I went with my mum to watch um, Cabaret the Musical, which I had never seen before. And obviously it felt especially prescient given current events. But what I didn't know, and I'm possibly revealing my own ignorance here, is that Cabaret the Musical is based on a play called I Am A Camera, which is in turn based on a very autobiographical novel called Goodbye to Berlin by Christopher Isherwood. And so I'm currently reading that. And I say with some optimism that I don't think I'm going to sort of, you know, war and peace it. Um, but, I have, <laughs> but I have, I have found it. I found it quite a melancholy experience reading it in a way, not just because of, you know, the war and the death and the senseless waste and the great burning pyre of human tragedy on top of human tragedy, but it just made me realise that, you know, Christopher Richwood went to Berlin and in the late, late 1920s to the early 19, 1930s and he saw the rise of the Nazis and wrote a book about life there. Whereas I don't see how any 21st century novelist or writer, which I vaguely consider myself to be, could do, could do that anymore because you know, I came out of the theatre and immediately you just walk into a mass of people on their phones and you realise that so much of life is lived not in the streets and bars and clubs and cafes anymore, but lived digitally inside our phones. And so it's very, which makes it very inaccessible to writers and also just kind of boring to writers as well. Hmm. It's supposed to be an escape room from politics, you know, not to put you back into it. That's, that's, that's political obsessions for us. All right, I'll just watch Sohan. a musical with my mum. That'll do, yes. <laughs> Yasmin Sohan, how about you? Um, well, since I came down with COVID last week or the week before, anyway, I was bedridden for several days um, and didn't really have the energy to do much. So I started watching Peaky Blinders, which I actually thought was quite good. But I know that's probably old, though I think it's still running. I'm not sure. Anyway, I'm... it literally just finished yesterday. Oh, oh, that's cool. Final episode. Well, I'm, I'm, I think I'm still in season two, so. Uh, yeah, I'm enjoying it. So I'd heard good things about that for a while. So I was like, let me put this illness to good use. Did it explain the mysteries of Birmingham to you? Um, it didn't live up. It made Birmingham. So I, I've been to Birmingham once for a party conference and I thought it was okay. Like I didn't get much of a chance to explore it, but I always felt like Birmingham, I've always felt like Birmingham just has a bad rap for no discernible reason. Um, so it's made seem, it made Birmingham seem cool or like, Kind of cool. I don't know. So yeah, I don't know. I feel like I don't know Birmingham well. I probably am more inclined to go visit on like a Peaky Blinders tour, if that if that makes sense. Organized crime is not cool, Yasmin. You need to remember that. <laughs> Gavin Esler, what's make your escape with- <laughs> I, I had a uh, low Brian, middle Brian, high Brian in the past week. I, the, I watched Sonic the Hedgehog with my kids, okay. uh, which is uh, pretty cool. Uh, I had realized I'd never seen Scarface, 
Oh. Uh, the Al Pacino film. So mm-hmm. I, I put that right because I always remembered the great line, say hello to my little friend and mm-hmm. wondered what that was about. And it's pretty nasty. And the highbrow bit is it's the 100th anniversary of T.S. Eliot publishing The Wasteland oh, this right, week. Yeah. And I'm doing something uh, at some churches in uh, in London. Uh, there's this kind of trail where people go around and uh, talk about what 1922 was like and if there are parallels to today. So I thought I'd better reread it. And it's a bit of hard work if you've, I mean, I haven't read it since I was about 20. Mm. And I decided I was going to figure out all the Greek and Roman references. And Google is great for the wasteland. <laughs> the wasteland, birthplace of modern intertextual sampling <laughs> culture. It was ba- He was basically the art of noise of his day, it picking was. up bits of old stuff and building something new out of it. So it did come out, it did Elliot, come out the in April and the wasteland. I didn't know that. It did. It did. April is the publishing month, <laughs> as the first line goes. Yeah. Well, my escape route, uh, I think I may have mentioned this on the podcast before, but it's Mr. In Between, the fantastic Australian drama, uh, which is on comedy drama, really, which is on Disney Plus. And it's basically the life and uh, travails of a jobbing hitman in the uh, in the Australian underworld. And it's about Ray whose job is to, is killing people and intimidating people, but also who has got a, a daughter and he's separated from his partner. And it's, it is about the kind of tension between the everyday drudgery of a single dad uh, who happens on the quiet to be um, a contract killer. And Ray is a fantastically charismatic um, monster. Um, he's not exactly a guy with a code, but he's certainly uh, a harassed, worn-down um, single dad with a lovely daughter who's trying to build a relationship uh, with a woman he's just met, and he has to keep disappearing every now and again to kill somebody and throw them in the shallow grave. It is very, very, very funny. <laughs> it's very, very bleak, uh, and I recommend it enormously. And it's because it is in, you know, it's it's the world of working-class Australia, which you never see on screen. And that you will just see a, a world of fantastically compelling characters, Mister In Between on Disney Plus, and that is the end of this week's bunker. Thank you, Tom Peck. Thanks very much. Thank you, Yasmin Saran. Thank you. And thank you to Gavin Esler. Thank you very much. Uh, we'll be back tomorrow with another bunker daily, and of course, the full length show this time next week. There will also also be the Culture Bunker every Saturday. Another reminder, if you like this podcast, please do support us on the funding platform Patreon. You'll get every episode early. You'll get exclusive content, merchandise, all kinds of things. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out more. And we will also get a shout out from our panel. And here are some now. Hello and thanks for your support to Donica Woods, Sarah Baldus and Pete Barrow. Hello, and thanks from me to Dave Holm, Yanif Schwerin, and Simon Best. A big thanks and hello from me to Tia Manisto, Linda Morgan, and Nick Perry. Back, back, back. Thanks, everybody, for your support. We'll see you next week. The Bunker was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison, with Yasmin Saran, Gavin Esler, and Tom Peck. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis, and the producers were Jacob Archbold, Yelda Sofronievich, and me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.